Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Time to get out of the cold and hit Orlando for Dev Intersection? What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. March 25th to 28th at the Swan Hotel in Orlando for another great Dev Intersection. All your favorites are going to be there, including Scott Guthrie and Scott Hanselman. Ah, the greater and lesser Scott. Yes. And if sequel is your thing, Paul Randall and Kim Tripp are, as usual, running an awesome set of sequel sessions. And this year at Dev Intersection, we have a special emphasis on new artificial intelligence technologies, including deep learning, cognitive services, and more. And of course, all the latest web tech, Angular, C Sharp, Visual Studio, all your favorites. So go to devint.netrocks.com right now and register. Sign up for a workshop as well, and you'll get some cool hardware. We'll see you there. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. This is Richard Campbell. And day three at NDC. This is the second to last show we'll be recording here. Maria Nagaga's here. We're going to be talking to her in just a few minutes. Not that they're going to come out in order, because that would take all the fun out of it. That's right. Somebody was complaining to me the other day that we sometimes don't publish in order of yeah. recording. It's like, because sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it would be more coherent, because sometimes it... it it's weird hearing yeah. a, f- a show that we recorded first three shows into yeah. a series. I do try and be in order, yeah, but sometimes it doesn't make sense. And I do tend to make Tuesday shows more technical than Thursday shows. Right. So if I think it's a real like you really really should listen to the show, I'll put that on a Tuesday where a more broad topic That's show right. is a Thursday. And you also set up a story arc. So we yeah. if we do something general, we do that first. Yep. Yeah. So all it, there is thought into it, but sometimes it creates a certain level of complexity. Oh, uh, well, just maybe a certain level of confusion anyway. Yeah, no, but I, I didn't, I, we're not going to make it easy on you anyway. <laughs> That's why you're listening to us. There you go. You want the challenge. There you go. Uh, let's roll the crazy music for a little thing we call Better Know a Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? Well, I know we've talked about WebAssembly and Steve uh, Sanderson and all that stuff. When Steve Sanderson blew up the universe by showing us the impossible? He did it again here. Yes. Yes, he did it again here. Did you catch it? I didn't, but uh, somebody came in and talked about it and just said, even though he had heard about it on our show, just seeing it for the first time. Well, and I understand, like, the product team itself are thinking about this. Like, we may see a shift in the way we do web development around these Yeah, things. it really is a mind game changer, a mind blower. And uh, I want to link back to Scott Hanselman's blog from August 2017, where he wrote, .NET and WebAssembly, is this the future of the front end? Nice. So, you know, if he's thinking about this as uh, being really uh, And the timing on that seems to slide into when Steve did that very first Blazor demo yeah. in June. Yeah, uh, in uh, in Oslo, so that it makes sense that he would write around there. Yeah, so it starts out six years ago. Eric Meyer and I were talking about how JavaScript is and was an assembly language. Remember that assembly yeah, language? Yeah, great for the line. Web. It turned into an interesting discussion slash argument. Some people didn't really buy it, but it still kept happening. And currently, <laughs> WebAssembly world is marching forward and is supported in Chrome, Firefox, and in development in Edge, Opera, and Safari. Wow. So, so it's going to happen. Yeah. And then he says, today in 2017, WebAssembly is absolutely a thing, and you can learn about it here at WebAssembly.org. I even did a podcast on WebAssembly uh, with Mozilla fellow David Bryant, and he goes through, you know, the, the whole story of it. And cool. so if you want to read And he does mention Blazor here, too. Absolutely. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So I thought that was good. Scott, you're awesome, and continue to be that way. And uh, this this whole blazer thing is just still mind-blowing and it's only one of many possibilities around web assembly so right. certainly you talk about story arcs yeah. this is a story arc in my mind that we need to check into on a regular basis yeah. i don't like to pester mr sanderson too much because that much awesome yeah. needs time to focus but, but uh, such a nice guy though nice very guy. unassuming yeah. and you know you don't take him for the genius that he is when you have lunch with him what i love is you know from that very first presentation like he wasn't thinking i'm gonna blow up the universe right he was just thinking i was trying to see if this was possible yeah here's where i got to and <laughs> you know i remember watching david fowler one of the smartest people i i know anywhere yeah holding his head like that one-handed right. grip of the side of your skull like he was trying to hold his brain in <laughs> watching what Steve Sanderson was doing. And the only thing funnier than watching David Fowler do that is watching Seth Juarez 
imitate David Fowler doing that. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> Do you have a video recording of that? Yes. I think we, <laughs> we, we should be playing that everywhere. Everywhere. It's lovely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, that's what I got. Uh, who's talking to nice us one. today, Richard? Uh, found a comment on show 10. Wait. 10. 10. 10. 10, 10. Yes, which in binary is 10. Oh, I see. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A bit of an old show. This is from July of 2014 Mm -hmm. uh, with David Graham talking about teaching new developers. Yeah. Uh, A subject we approach every so often, but maybe not often enough, and I suspect we're going to talk about again today. Mm. And this comment comes from Chris Dobson. So admittedly, the comment's three years old. Uh, where he says, I was very interested in this show as a keen developer and a volunteer for Code Club in the UK, which teaches primary school kids wow. to code, and a father of a daughter who has just started her GCSE computer science course. Wow. Yeah. Which means she's probably close to graduating now. Yeah. It's yep. three years later, right? There were a couple of comments in the show that reminded me of her experience in this course so far about six weeks in. She began the course full of enthusiasm for it, and having spoken to the teacher and being told there was a lot of programming involved, I was also interested in seeing what she'd be learning. Anyway, six weeks in, and no sign of even a hello world or getting near a computer. She does, however, know a lot about Alan Turing. Oh, theoretical programming on sixth grade. The, 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 this is GCA. So she's oh, doing oh, her yeah, own yeah. levels. She's, yeah. Oh, okay. She's doing her own levels. It's yeah. like, like U.S. high school? Uh, no, or high is school it? is the last two years of, uni- of, of um, before you go to university, correct? Right. So this would be called middle school? Middle school. Like, it's middle school so level. I still, I'm still trying to adjust yeah, to no, the no, way I, you guys I appreciate think. So are we. Uh, yeah, believe it or not. <laughs> I appreciate your UK school system insight there, Maria. Thank oh, you for that. When I went to middle school, it was called junior high school. Yeah. Okay. My seventh, eighth, and ninth. School. Your girls went to middle school. Yeah, right? they did. So we have the concept, and I say we, because um, I grew up in England, and I'm also Ugandan, so, you know, it's, it was a colony. Yeah. Um, so you have... O-levels, which is first form to fourth form. And then right. you do this massive exam, which is your GCSEs. Mm-hmm. And that kind of determines what you do in your A-levels. Okay. And um, you do a combination of four classes or five, depending on how smart you are. Ah. So you can do like physics, chemistry, math, and biology. Or history, economics, literature, and divinity. So I did history, economics, literature, and divinity. Nice. Uh-huh. Um, thinking I was going to be a lawyer. And, and following my family's footsteps of the law. And yeah, you ended right. up in the software. The software. <laughs> and it took, it took me a while, right? Because I did get a history degree. And then I was like, I can't get employed with a history degree. Yes. Mm. But the, you can. Want fries teacher. with that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went back to school and did a computer science. There but you, you can only say you want fries with that in the summer when you're off your history teacher job. There you go. Yeah. This, <laughs> this is going to be, I have not finished reading this comment Yes, yet. I know. Please. This is going to be a fun show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because I, we were coming from this from a position of frustration. Yeah. yeah. Because the correct answer to teaching programming is to get your fingers on the keyboard the first day. Yes. Yeah. And here we are six weeks in, but she knows a lot about it. And Alan Turing's wonderful. Like, sure. you should know that. Sure. But it's going to mean so much more to you. When you know If what. you've written some code. Yeah. Yes. Right. Uh, let me finish. As a result, all of her early enthusiasm was waning. Hmm. In her case, as she had a father who will help her out and show her things to do in code to keep her interested, but many of her classmates don't have that option. Hmm. I can't help thinking that experiences like this will have a detrimental effect on the number of kids studying computer science after high school. Wow. Yeah, can't disagree with you, Chris. And immediately, now I'm kind of glad I'm reading this three years later because now the class is finished. Yeah. She's gone on. She's well into her A's, perhaps even in the university. Hmm. Uh, Please... Let it. I'm going to send you a mug whether you do or not, but yeah. I hope you'll let us know, right? You know, what the outcome was there, because I, you know, I know you're excited to have your daughter involved in your trade, and uh, hopefully she is. Yeah. So, Chris, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you, and if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Facebook and Google Plus. And if you comment there and we read it on the show. We'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And uh, send us a tweet. Java. <laughs> <laughs> no. Outlook. Outlook. Java. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All the jokes that involve waiting and then talking about something that's slow. The pregnant pause. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. Uh, okay, well, let, let me formally introduce Maria. Maria Nagaga is a developer and an artist. She is a senior program manager on the Visual Studio and .NET team, where she explores ways to engage and teach new developers about .NET open source. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. I I have to start with a story because thinking I, I have I had a middle schooler once, once and when she was in middle school, two even. Yeah, yeah, well, when my my youngest was in middle school, I actually went to her school and did I wasn't teaching programming, but I was just trying to light the spark, like trying to show something really cool that yeah. you can do as a software developer. So I have a piano in my studio. Let's call it, think of it as a piano in your house, right? Okay. And I have a camera on. Actually, I had a laptop pointed to it with a Skype uh, interface that okay. I could automatically connect to. It automatically answer. Okay. So then I also have that sitting on top of a server that is listening over a UDP port for some uh, n- numbers. And those numbers come from a keyboard that I play remotely. And then they get sent to the piano, which has MIDI built into the into it. So like a player piano, I can trigger the notes. So essentially what I can do is I can play my piano through the internet. <laughs> that is nice. Now, this is this was the best because they're all sitting there like with this keyboard and stuff. And I said, now let me let me play something. And I hit a key and they can't see anything yet, right? I hit a key and a few seconds later you hear bong, right? I, bong, right? Yeah. Bong, 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 right? And I said, now who wants to tell me where that sound is coming from? It's the keyboard. <laughs> no. The, the speaker. Well, yeah, but the speaker's not making the sound. Let me give you a hint. It's not coming from inside this building. And then the <laughs> question marks over their heads was fantastic. They're just sitting there like, huh? And then I showed the, the picture from Skype of the piano and the piano keys going, some kid. Middle schooler jumped up in the back, goes, that's not possible. <laughs> that's not real. What are you doing? And I, he's like, you just made that up. There's somebody doing it. And I said, no, you come up here. And then somebody's like playing chopsticks or whatever. They yeah. came up and did it and then saw the piano keys moving. Oh, wow. It was like, you know, mind blowing. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. So so then I went into a, just a little bit of how how that works. Yeah. And, you know, that was enough. But I hope, I really hope that was kind of a moment for some kids that said, wow, you know, yeah. what what I can do. Yeah, someone probably watched that and probably decided that I am going to be an engineer. I'm going to go into computer science right now. That's <laughs> right. that's ho- the hope that you have and the impact that you have that people actually right. think about this as a possibility. So mm. I love stories like that. Yeah. yeah. And I, love and them. I, I guess the question is, how do they actually think about that? Yeah. There's a great TED talk by Bert Rutan. Okay. So that's the guy who's who built the Voyager, the airplane that flew around the world without refueling. Oh, yes. And wow. he's responsible for Spaceship One. Like the guy has been inventing crazy aircraft for ages. Wow. Uh, and he was certainly talking about his inspirations. But in the talk, in the midst of this 18-minute talk, he was talking about his own inspirations, guys like Jack Northrup. That were sort of the pioneers of the aviation industry. And as he studied them, he realized they were all within two years of each other, age-wise. Oh. And so he's trying to figure out why. Why were all these people, these huge influencers of the aviation industry, all the same age? Hmm. And and by getting to know them and backing into their stories, they were all between 10 and 12 years old at the end of World War I. When ah. the barnstorm, when the pilots came home, and now airplanes were a thing mm-hmm. because of the end of oh, the war right. and the beginning of the barnstormers, where, where these pilots didn't want to stop flying anymore. The yeah. Air Force is downsized, so they they bought a surplus airplane and they'd fly stunts for money. Yeah, right. And these, it, to me, the impact was that age, that ten to twelve range. Yeah. If you show them a thing, if you play a piano through yeah, Skype, right, like right. what is the thing that that moment, whether they, it's going to be ten years later before they make the decision. Yeah. But you seeded it then. Right. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I was um, talking to a friend of mine who's um, Afrikaans. And he, she was wondering why you have Elon Musk and I forget the creator of District 9 and the obsession with space and travel and going sure. beyond the stars. Mm. And she found out because she read and did all these articles that 
you know, in apartheid South Africa, because, you know, Elon Musk grew up in South Africa. Yeah, he's South African, and Afrikaans is the Dutch variant from South Africa. Um, He, there was this show, because everything was embargoed, and they didn't have access to shows from abroad. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have the Sesame Streets and all that stuff. Sure. Mm. So there was a show um, in Afrikaans, which was all about learning numbers and letters, Ah. and it was told in the context of space. Interesting. Wow. And they're wow. all they're all about the same age, right? So they all watch those. They shows. all watch that show. That's how they learn. So whenever they think about being creative, and you're seeing two different people, one of them is a director, right? Mm. And, a and film making creator. these remarkable science fiction movies, yeah, like Chappie yes. and District Nine, mm-hmm. and one of them is going into space, yeah. And they're exactly, wow. I think they're about one or two years apart, yeah. the two of them. And I wonder how old they were. But and what do you bet it was that same? I think they were about uh, probably. Six five, yeah. For these yeah. shows, like my nephew wants to be an architect because the books that he read were told about New York and the building of New yeah, York and stuff. So he's obsessed. Like going to his room, they are blocks and Legos of architectural buildings and right. the way things glide. And he has these whole angles and stuff. His mind is set because yeah. of the books mm. that we read to him were about. Living as a kid in New York and right. driving past the Empire State and the Chrysler, and it was in reference to buildings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So his entire life. You never know what they're going to take from that story because I'm sure those stories were about more things in oh, New yeah. York sure. than the buildings, but that's what resonated. That's what resonated. And with I, him. I, so cool. I get it. I mean, all of us are educators in one form or another, and certainly when I saw the Bert Rattan things, when I started making a point of talking about STEM subjects to middle schoolers. Yeah. yeah. But now it was my mission. If this is where the best difference can be made, it's fine. You know, you get a connection with a school, you offer up, I, I donate my time, yeah. and then you do a few of them, they find out, hey, he's not crazy, and he's not <laughs> spreading a weird agenda. And and so mm-hmm. it, it's something I do two or three times a year to this day. Yeah. And it's funny to see a room, 30 or 60 kids in them, mm. you light up one or two. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. most of them have got their own their own world so forth, but you show the right image, the right idea, and you sort of have a moment where right. it's like hit a mind today. Yeah. Got there. And you won't know for twenty years later. Yeah. yeah. You, won't you know. really won't. You know? You won't actually know. But right? it, you know, the takeaway here is if you're gonna talk to middle schoolers, you have an opportunity to really change somebody's life yeah. forever. And don't squander it. Don't yeah. squander don't it on to, don't, don't academic it stuff. <laughs> <laughs> where do you teach software? Uh, so I've been teaching software and people just learning how to code in different places. Usually mm-hmm. it's on my own personal time. Mm. So when I was a technical evangelist prior to becoming a program manager, I used to offer a lot of my time working with Black Girls Code right. or Code.org. Nice. And it was really a trial and error and also working with the w- YWCA. And it actually gave me a broad range of kids that I worked with. So I did a class at my nephew's school, which is a private school in New York, where mm. kids have more opportunity. I did things at the YWCA. And you learn what works and what doesn't work when you're teaching people how to write code for the first time. Yeah. The first mistake I made was I brought a PowerPoint and they uh, walked through the history. Uh, yeah. And I did all these you things. Taught about Alan Turing. I told them all these, like, <laughs> look at all these great people who did all these things and math is exciting and all this is exciting. And the kids were just like, after five minutes, were just like, like bored out of their yeah, dear right. minds. Yeah. And you realize that in order to keep kids' attention, like from a, ver- like a variety of ages, is you have to show them immediate results yeah the reward you have to show them the reward sure. yeah. you have to show them that okay like if you're doing scratch yeah here you have this character who's doing nothing on the screen imagine if we added this block yeah, yeah. and you had them spin around yeah. a couple of times why are they going off the page because we didn't tell them to turn left yay yeah. <laughs> right and then you have them add the blocks and before you know it and this is the thing about kids is that they have no fear sure right because right? when as a grown up because i learned to code as a early later in life there's this fundamental fear of like i'm gonna screw something up yeah. you draw in the lines yes yeah well they are I don't care. I don't know. I don't yes. know. How yeah. is that important? <laughs> what happens when I put this four block in? Oh, that right. person spin, spin around like, 
a hundred times. They keep on doing it. That's fine. And then they start putting things together piece by piece. Yeah. Mm. And you also have to remember that, you know, you're probably going to get 15 minutes out of them at a, at a particular sure. time. No, you've so got to work within that constraint. You have to work too. within the constraint. Because I've taught kids as young as five. Um, and this was um, with game. What was it? Um, was it Game Makers? It was started by Stacey Mulcahy. Mm-hmm. And it was a weekend thing where she'd invite all her friends. They would sit at Microsoft and we would teach kids of all ages. I remember teaching five-year-olds. Every two to five minutes, someone gets up and just starts drawing on a board and you yeah. have to just yeah. go with it. And that's just how it is, right? That's how that's, it is. That's what it is. I remember uh, using Kodu. Remember Kodu, the yeah, game thing? Yeah, the, the, the one from Microsoft? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah Microsoft yeah. Research did this yeah. Kodu thing and they, it's basically a thing you can engage with your kids to yeah. do a scratch-like thing, but... But with, I think it was using, uh, what was it? It was the, the, the graphics engine that they had. I can't even remember. Was so it long XNA? Ago. Was it? XNA, yeah. 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 So, um, I was, I was doing this with my same younger yeah, daughter, yeah. right? When she was very, really young. And we got this thing flying around, uh, a, you know, the, whatever, yeah. a, a plane, but it was flying in a circle and it was dropping, things yeah. that w- these other things on the ground would then eat up and randomly bump into each other and then they'd swallow them, right? Yeah. So she's like, so that's kind of a slow rate. Maybe we should drop more mm-hmm. faster and see what happens. Yeah. So she put in some crazy number and the thing's like, and now they're going crazy and she's like laughing. That's so funny. You know, because you overwhelmed the system. Nice. That's funny. I love it. And I think it's also important with kids um, to, especially with kids, is mixing the physical aspect of it to yes. the actual virtual aspect of it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if any of you have heard of, um, I think it might be from Mantel called Bloxels. Bloxel? Blox. Yeah. B-L-O-X-E-L. Huh. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a game. It's a it's a UK product, isn't it? I believe yeah. so. Build your own video games. Yeah. So you actually have... The physical aspect where the kids have to put puzzles together. Nate. They take a picture of it, mm-hmm. and then they can start writing instructions on their iPad. Wow. wow. Right? And then the next step So is they start with a physical thing, and then they make it into a digital the, thing. Yes. That's wow. really cool. It's that really cool. cool. And my ne- I got it for Christmas for all my nephews and nieces, mm-hmm. and they love it. Wow. Although I've increased the amount of time on the iPads, which their parents really hate me for, yeah. but I'm just like, I don't need to take care of them. Yeah, the the but day. it's also you're giving them more than a game. You've yes, given I them, have. Yeah. yeah, this is not just watching YouTube no. or, or playing Candy Crush. This yeah. is a far more creative endeavor. Yeah. Well, guys, hold that thought for just one minute while we pause for this very important message. We've all come to expect that distributed databases can't be both globally consistent and scalable. What if you didn't have to make trade-offs? What if you could have a fully managed database service that's consistent, scales horizontally across data centers, and speaks SQL? Introducing Cloud Spanner, a mission-critical relational database service from Google Cloud Platform. Built from the ground up and battle-tested at Google for strong consistency and high availability at a global scale. Learn more about Cloud Spanner online at g.co slash get spanner. That's g.co slash get spanner. All right, and we're back. .NET Rocks, Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell in London talking to Maria Nagaga. We're talking about teaching programming, and specifically we're on kids right now, and I think it's just a wonderful thing to teach a kid how to program. If, they, if, they, if you get it through in the right way, I mean, the kid has to be receptive enough you know, you you can't be boring. Make it fun for them. Yeah, and kids working with kids um, as I started my career actually also helped me be more empathetic to the engineering process. I, mm. I totally agree. You know, I first started teaching in schools to make me a better speaker in the industry. Yeah, because if you can light up a teenager, like mm. that's a much harder swing to make. Yeah, so it was a way to sort of weight the bat and make me work harder. And then yeah. I turned it actually became way more fun. Too. Exactly, like, work is work, yeah. and I don't mind my work, and I you know enjoy what I do. But lighting up kids is its own reward. It, yeah. it, it's so and it teaches you this level of patience, mm-hmm. even oh, building yeah. a product. So much patience. Yeah, it or definitely it, affected the way I present in every form. Every form, and yeah. like uh, I used to 
assume a lot of knowledge when I presented, sure. like assuming that everyone in the audience knew exactly what I was talking yes. about. Mm-hmm. And having worked with non-technical people for most of my career at Microsoft in mm. making impact and teaching new things, I feel that I think about the product a lot more. Mm-hmm. So um, after working with kids and then joining the Visual Studio team, I remember speaking to Hunter, and you guys know who Scott Hunter yeah, is. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Owns yeah. all of .NET Owns days. all of .NET, yeah. you know, and you have to say Hunter and Hanselman and only Scott Goo gets Scott. Yeah. Right. yeah. There's only one Scott. <laughs> There's only one Scott. There, there are some <laughs> lesser Scots. Yeah, those, those <laughs> other people. Um, and I remember joining the team, and I was like, oh, you know, I've been an evangelist. Uh, what do they expect me to do? Yeah, right. Mm. And I remember having dinner with Hunter, and Hunter's like, you have that empathy to understand what non-.NET devs need right. mm-hmm. and what they need to understand. Because I really only started doing .NET when it became .NET Core. Mm. Right. Before that, I had no interest in it. I was like, I'm mm. Python, JavaScript, and Java. Like mm. very traditional, like coming out of CS school. And, sure. yeah. and they tell you things like .NET and C Sharp, that's too enterprise. And it has, you know, this yeah, is yeah. anti-.NET C Sharp right. perspective yeah. when you're in school. Yeah, we know about it. And... Having those thoughts, and I was like, okay, he said, go go after net new developers and think about what they want to do. Sure, and you are a net new developer. I'm a net new developer. So I had Hmm. to think about uh, documentation. So I had a big impact in the way the docs team was actually thinking about going forward. Sure. Um, The docs is awesome. Yes. Yes, they've done, like Bill Wagner and Myra have done such a great job. um, Yeah. And Rob Eisenberg, I don't know if you know him. Excellent, excellent job. They are. I was happy that they actually listened to me, and I was like, "Too much text, cut it down. Nobody cares." Uh-huh. <laughs> nice, um, nice. Show me so the that code. So that was you. That yeah. was me, All right. right? And I was like, as things get more complicated, and and Scott um, Hanselman and I, because Hanselman's my boss, we have this back and forth where. I will ask him a question and he'll tell me the historical reference. And I was like, I just wanted to know yeah, <laughs> like yeah, what yeah. that API did. I don't really yeah, care. I don't really even know the past five the versions, versions of it. Yeah. But, but, as, but you understand that if you spark the interest in something, people mm-hmm. will go and learn on their own. People sure. will actually make that commitment. Yeah. This gets back to the piano effect. It's like we have to show the reward. Yeah. They'll pull the details out of us yeah. to get to that reward. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And... Never, like even talking back to assumptions, we shouldn't assume what our net new and non.net developers or non-developers in any other languages um, want to see. Mm. So I spent a year and I'm really happy that Hunter and Hanselman and Julia Linson and mm-hmm. John Montgomery, all the people who are the higher ups on my team, I said, I want to spend a year of this job just researching the way people use languages, yeah. sure. the way people learn languages. And the way I did that, you know, I had to get my hands dirty. I rolled up my sleeves and I started pitching .NET to boot camps mm. and talking to .NET with non-.NET developers at Pivotal and different companies. Mm-hmm. And I asked them, you know, what's holding you back? Mm. Like, why aren't you exploring .NET and mm. thinking about C Sharp? And they're like, we think this is all exciting. We love the .NET core piece, but one, your documentation sucks, and I'm not allowed. I don't know if I'm allowed to say sucks on that. Oh, sure you are. You could say far worse than that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. If, we, okay. if the censors we, think it's bad, they'll bleep they it. They will so. bleep it. Okay. But I'm pretty sure they're not bleeping that. No. Okay. Because the documentation used to suck. <laughs> suck. Really? All right? it, it, it really sucked. And, and this was from all groups of people. And I said, what would you expect to see? I said, first of all, when you do anything with Microsoft products, or if you do anything with .NET or C Sharp, there's this expectation that you know exactly what version to download. Yeah. You have the tools that you need. Um, you're running Windows. So a lot of documentation where they still say, make sure you're using a version of Windows right. in order to, and you're using Visual Studio specifically yeah. to do this. And they said, you need to have more online REPL experiences. Hmm. So I did research. I sat down. I did the work. And I went to all the higher-ups. And I did this pitch of like, we need to build a online experience. And this is the data that backs it. Mm-hmm. And to my delight, Julia's like, go, here's an engineering team. Go do it. Nice. And that ah. was the birth of try.net. And I don't know if any of you have seen mm-hmm. try.net. Yes. But its ability to run .net in the browser. Yeah. yeah. That was the beginning of that. I mean, now it's all integrated through the docs and stuff. Yeah. Like it's yeah. everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. And it was a lot of work. And people don't realize there's so many other great .net experiences out mm-hmm. there that people have really worked hard on. But when it comes to Microsoft, people expect it to be 100% secure. 
and you have to work with all the and then you yeah. have conversations with Barry Dorns who makes you afraid of <sighs> banking your money in a bank. Oh no, he makes me afraid <laughs> to go outside. No, right? <laughs> you're just like, should I sleep with my money under a mattress, like in my house, and never leave? But yeah, so. But I mean, what's awesome about Try.net is like zero barrier to entry. Do you have a browser? That's try. Try.net. Yeah. That's <laughs> it. And we're just at the beginning. Um, we're going farther. Like you will be in the future be able to do like a lightweight a lightweight ASP.NET application. Interesting. Wow. Be able to open that in Visual Studio. So stuff wow. that you've experimented with here now, you can carry it to I presume VS Code as well. Like yep. just to sure, give people paths so that nothing you did when you were starting gets thrown away. Nothing as you gets progress. thrown away. Yeah, I love and, that. And we, we need to have that transition. So yeah. that's something that we're actively working on. That's we're cool. really, really excited. And this really did come from teaching people for a long time. And right. also um, being dyslexic, I'm also very thoughtful on the way we describe things to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way we write things down. Yeah. How how much how many words and how much context we give before, you know, people yeah. give up. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, oh, I'm not getting this. I'm not getting this. Let me walk away. Well, and for yeah. better or worse, code has a mystique that people expect it to be hard. Yes. Right? Expect it to be more and, and are shocked when it isn't and are relieved when it is. Yeah. And almost, it, and I'm thinking they're looking for an excuse to quit, but they're willing to accept that they would be unable to do it. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. it's, and I don't, I don't feel like it's true. I do acknowledge that there's you struggle for a certain amount of time in coding mm-hmm. before a switch throws in your head that you see that breakthrough moment where there's suddenly oh i i get the cause and effect now i do this i get that and yeah. that you don't get that on the at the first minute i mean i've seen it happen within a couple of hours mm. but i've also seen people struggle for days well, yeah. before especially they get if, over that hump especially if it's too abstract for a long period of time hey if you've done 6 weeks of touring yeah Right, you're you're, really you're ruined. Give up. You're yeah. ruined, right? You've been I mean, wounded anyway. Yeah. It's like when you did, do you both have CS degrees? No, no, <laughs> neither okay. of us. Yeah. But I remember in when I did my computer science degree at Dalhousie, which I think you probably know mm-hmm. of. Um, we started as twenty-four students. We graduated as at eight. Wow. Eight. Because and this is not that long ago. This is not that long ago. And if you look at any university. It's pretty, pretty high. Like the drop-off rate is a lot higher than you think. Mm. Anybody that could make the admission of a university like Dalhousie, which is a good, good university, mm. should be able to program. That's like a non program is not that hard. Yeah. You were able to make it through the entrance exams. You were able mm. to get marks good enough. How does more than half drop out? Is mm. that the instructor? Like what's going on? I, I think it's the instructors being too and I understand from an academic perspective, we do have to be very theoretical because yeah. um, at Dalhousie, my my um, my thesis professor actually still hasn't forgiven me for not going into my master's. Ah, uh, all right. Because oh. he said the expectation is <laughs> like, because I got into Stanford and he's like, you're going to Microsoft instead of Stanford? Maria, why? <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, there's this expectation that they expect you to go and build the next programming language. They expect right. you to go and build the next platform. The next they platforms. Go, they, they, well, that they, is computer science. science the traditional sense yeah. of that. And people are not expecting that. No. And then when you hit... Um, Principles of programming language, like getting through that class is hard enough. Yeah. And then and the algorithms. Is, to be a successful, productive programmer that the majority of the planet needs, you don't need to know how to make languages. No. Mm. It's not, arguably, it's a distraction yeah. from the Could engineering be. of software that is practical and valuable. Yeah. Right. And we also need to rethink the way, we have to rethink what an engineer is as well. Sure. Well, and, and admittedly, to say to be kind to Dalhousie Canadian University, <laughs> uh, it was a computing science class, yeah. not a computer engineering. Class. Yes, right. And there's obviously a distinction. Distinction. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? It must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to announce a new .NET language for ten-year-old boys. Instead of catching exceptions, you catch farts. <laughs> Jeez, it works on 50-year-old boys, too. what 10-year-old boy doesn't like farts? (laughs) All right. All the boys like them. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. 
Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React grid, built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, virtual DOM, state controllers, and all that. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing it. And you can check it out for free on GitHub. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com slash superhero. Well, all right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Ron Puckett. Hey, congratulations, Ron. Yay. Golf clap for you, sir. And Ron just won the D-Experience subscription of Big Pile Awesome from our friends at DevExpress just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guests, Maria, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? I think I would buy laptops for other people. Mm, you kill me. Every Altruist. <laughs> Altruist. Uh, yeah. So there was the OLPC. Okay. Remember that? It was, the, it was like the $100 laptop back in the day. And I was one of the Kickstarter guys who was like, you know, buy one, get one. I think I yes. I bought 10, mm. got one, and the mm. rest got distributed. Although it died, it I mean, did. ultimately. Mm. But uh, for the brief time that it was alive, the hacking that went on. Really? <laughs> people weren't, ex it, you know, I love every time we get reminded that just because it's a developing nation doesn't mean they aren't brilliant. Yeah. Yes. And that would say these young people landed with these relatively primitive laptops. Yeah. And I, they probably used them as designed for a week. And then they took them apart. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and made them better. <laughs> I, like, I go back home to Uganda once a year. And I always meet a group of engineers, and it is just amazing the things that they do mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, with, with the with the resources available at the time. Exactly, mm. and you have to remember, like in Uganda, internet access is really bad. Yeah, mm. it's, it's terrible. It's kinda like, like here. It's kind of like here, <laughs> right? Like, Today, like, and um, a lot of them don't. They're not googling or bingling. Yes, <laughs> uh, their answer is they're actually working through the code. Right, because yeah. they just don't have the option. It's actually faster than the latency like, out of Uganda. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they just don't have the option. Sure. And I have this one friend who created this application that's actually helping women get jobs in Uganda. Nice. Mm. So a lot of people don't have washing machines in Uganda, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. the electricity is really not that great to power them. Yeah. So he created an app which is like Lyft for Lyft slash Uber for women who can come and wash clothes at your house. Oh, wow. neat. So you can find, and, and they go through a vetting process. So you can be like, okay, I need this washed. Mm -hmm. And you see who's closest to you. Mm. You text them. They come over and they wash it. So wow. they've got work. You know, the, the household that needs the, wa the clothes washed can do that. Yeah. Like you're really sort of leveling up society in that respect that you allow people to specialize. Yeah. And free up resources for folks that, that want to work on other things. Exactly. And, you know, things people are like, oh, Venmo and all this stuff is so cool. Mm -hmm. um, Kenya has had M-Pesa for 10 years. Sure. Of being able to share money across anywhere. Like, if you go to Kenya today and you have an M-Pesa account, no one is exchanging money. No. Like, even in Uganda. Well, and not with the vending machines either, no. right? You use your mm. phone, phone to buy your coat. Everything. Sure. So, um, I, like, I remember my mom, and I was like, this is where my mom's actually cooler in tech than I am. <laughs> so I was just like, I went to visit, and I was getting out the cash, and my mom was like, no one carries cash anymore. What's your M-Pesa <laughs> number? How and primitive I was, I was are like, you how exactly? primitive are you? Yeah. Right? I love um, that. But, like, there's so much innovation happening. Um, I wish we had more incubators there to actually see yeah. the level of innovation what people are doing in terms of being able to diagnose disease. Yeah. Like one of the reasons why I got into Stanford back in the day was I created this um, predictive um, system, and this was before machine learning, where it would predict where the next outcome of malaria would break out. Interesting. 
um, based on the water levels, right? The access to the doctors, the heat waves, and I looked all of the. Now there's something called machine learning that makes it so right. much easier. But it's basically mm. optimization for mosquito growth. Yeah. yeah, and uh, that's how I got into Stanford. But like, they didn't give me a scholarship. So, mm. uh, you know, yeah. I saw this TED talk. We were talking about kids and self-teaching and all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, it was by Sugata Mitra. And oh, yes. do you know who he is? Mm-hmm. Oh, all right. So you'll, you'll correct me if I get any of this wrong. But one of the greatest things I ever heard was he talked about how he took these Windows computers or he took one Windows computer to New Delhi. And I think it was like a Windows 95 time mm-hmm. frame. I'm not sure. And he set it up in the street. Yep. And just behind a wall where they, you know, they couldn't obviously steal anything is right. just like working and the kids said what is that what is that and he goes uh, i don't know and they're like well what can you do with it and he goes eh, we'll see you later he like didn't talk to him right, <laughs> right. and then uh, he came back like a year later and they had been doing amazing things with this computer but they didn't even speak english yep. right but he came back a year later they're speaking english and they're writing in english yep. and he said how did you learn to do that and he goes well the documentation's in english so we had to teach ourselves english first that's how it worked yeah right yeah, revolutionizes the whole idea of self-teaching. Just it does. give somebody a resource, see what they do with it. Oh, yeah. Like the way I taught myself how to work, because I had no intention of ever being in a CS degree. Mm. Um, like I come from a family of lawyers. And I remember when I finished my A-levels, I didn't get the grades to get into law, like, law school undergrad. Because uh. here, um, everywhere else in the world except North America. Yeah. You do law immediately after your A-levels. Yeah. Right. So I ended up doing a history degree. And I remember working in the Red Cross for a while. And I accidentally right-clicked on a webpage, which was Destiny's Child. That's why I love Beyonce. And <laughs> I tell everyone, like, Beyonce got me into tech. And one day she will know this and call me on the phone. Oh. Um, and I remember right-clicking and seeing um, the view source, right? And seeing that. Yeah. And then I'm like, what is this? And I remember saving it onto a flash drive mm. and then uploading it at home. and saying, okay, this kind of looks like a webpage. And then just reading through... Yeah. HTML and changing it and yeah. all that stuff. Right. And you'll see the effects. Seeing the yeah. effects. And that's when I was like, okay, I want to do the CS thing. And that's when I went to Dalhousie. Right. Wow. I did a computer science yeah. degree. So, like, my entire 20s was in school. We blame Beyonce. Well, and Beyonce. Part, of the, you know, part of the timing, I mean, before the break, we were ranting about computer science versus yeah. computer engineering. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. these days, you do find computer engineering curriculums, but they fall into the engineering character category. Yeah. Like you do a standard first year engineering education yeah. and then you can take a specialty in computing mm. engineering, which actually I think it's still a very steep course. Like yep. I'm familiar, many friends of mine from my graduation block that did go into engineering, but it was electrical engineering. Yeah, mostly, like, yeah. Uh, and became great programmers. Mm. Like an electrical engineer is a fine way of thinking for, for being a software developer. Uh, but also it was like 50% failure rate. The engineering curriculum was tough. Oh, wow. yes. Just really, really challenging. Uh, especially in electrical engineering, there was, a, there was this class, DC motors. Okay. Now I'm in, I'm a child of an engineer, of an electrical engineer. Yeah. So I was taught electrical stuff from literally uh, when I could walk. DC motors makes no sense. Like they're just one of those insane. AC motors make total sense. Yeah. DC motors are insane. <laughs> and the class at the time, I guess this is in the 80s. Mm. The guy who taught the class on DC motors was used to everyone in the class failing. Huh. And then they would just scale the class. Yeah. All you need to know is that you don't understand DC motors. So at least you're not fooling yourself. But they, often it's like passing grade is 20%. Hmm. But every other year, yeah. one person got it. And then suddenly wow. it's like you've got everybody else coming in around 15 to 20% and an 80%. Oh, wow. Like hmm. it's like some minds can deal with the insanity that is the DC motor. I, and I, I, I always wondered they made them teach the class the next year. Right? So, <laughs> hey, you get it, you're up. Huh. <laughs> like uh, my brother is an electrical engineer, not anymore. Now he did a PhD in sustainable energy, I think. Oh, wow. Um, but he he was one of those kids who just like he was telling me that was one of the hardest classes yes. they did. But whenever I meet an EE, I sort of say, "So where'd you fall on DC motors?" And ninety nine percent of the time, they're actually just, "Oh man." <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing is that when you said you want to make them teach the class the next year, yeah. my brother was a TA for the class right. for until he graduated. So yeah. he was the one. Wow. And he was the one that got, got it. The one good. And it, yeah. it's like, okay, you're going to help teach this now, and it makes total sense, right? But yep. it's, I mean, what's interesting about a lot of that curriculum, and I think it completely applies in the computing spaces, you need to be aware of the solved problems, but you don't have to solve them. Mm. You just need to know that they're there. They are the shoulders you stand on while you go do the next thing. Yeah. I like 
that. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Well, it's like we every time you hear that that mindset of you know somebody does something great and it says I stand on the shoulders of giants. I think part an important part of a classical education at yeah. this level is know the shoulders. Yes. Right. That these are known things, and it's worth for you knowing them, so that you you know how to stand on them correctly. That exactly. you can actually take advantage of them. That's the power of that education. Actually, is yeah. not that you reinvent the flipping DC motor. Mm-mm. You know, yeah. it's a waste of time. Know that it exists, that it's hard, and where you learn more about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I still feel like computing science and computing engineering is not well enough organized that way. Yeah, uh, There's so many pieces to learn. People talk about we should be teaching patterns. And I'm like, I don't feel like you can really learn patterns yeah. until you've dashed yourself on the rocks of a disorganized piece of software. Yeah, mm. But getting to a level of complexity where you're like, there's got to be a better way. Now let's talk about patterns. I like that idea. Um I work with a couple of boot camps. Mm-hmm. I help them build .NET curriculums. And one of the things that I do is give them a really old code base. Hmm. So mm. I give them the original nerd dinner. Yeah. Oh, wow. The original nerd dinner. Those and I told them, thing. yeah, and I told them to go and make it um, .NET core. Oh, wow. Interesting exercise, right? And been done before, yeah. but certainly a way to... Yeah, uh, I was the person that Hansman went, went and he made me go do it again. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> That's like, great. Make this dot at core. Um, but I always think it's a really good thing. Sure. Yeah. Like, and also a great debugging process for mm-hmm, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, I, one would argue the exercise of taking on an existing code base, period. It's important. It's just, it, and, it, and how do you teach good unit test coverage? Here's a piece of code I want you to alter. Yeah. And don't yeah. break anything. And and then, you know, the process of learning it, you know, writing that, that code coverage is a great way to learn that code base and to learn what to be afraid of, like where the ugly bits exist. I think it's a great exercise. I think it might be Waterloo because I had a couple of friends who went to university mm-hmm. in Waterloo. And they is this internal um, IDE that was built by a professor. Hmm. And all the first years use that IDE. And it is their responsibility to maintain it Wow. And introduce new things, write proper documentation, yeah. make sure it doesn't break because everyone in the classroom depends is on, on, depends yeah, on sure. it. Right. So it creates that sense of, of fear that a, that, that a real dev in a real project has. Don't ha- break the build. Don't break the build. Yeah. And it's their responsibility to then pass it on to the next first year class. Interesting. Mm. Now, the, my only concern is that eventually the code base gets mature enough that it's no longer a good example. Exactly. Like I'd almost wanted to read. We've got this problem with already now. Yes. Right. This is humanitarian toolbox. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it already is now mature enough. It is no longer a good learning tool for somebody new to .NET Core. Oh. It's just complicated, and so it's a tough entry point. And so part of I me, mean, we're not actually in the business from from a charity perspective of teaching people to develop, but it is far easier to recruit a volunteer developer with an opportunity to learn something new. Yeah. And and that has been true for the past few years for already, and I've, it's just gotten complex enough that somebody new is like. <sighs> They just sort of sit back. <laughs> I, I don't know that I'm prepared to take this on. Oh, and yeah. I wonder with this example, like I would hope he reset it. Yeah, I would hope so. And just go to go back and let them build it up again. Like I hope they do an exercise of like, how would you make this modern? Should we take it to Electron? Sure. Mm. Yeah. Um, what's mm. the next step? How do we evolve this? Well, you know, if you were careful and clever, you would allow it to evolve for three years, then take a snapshot of it, keep that, revert it back, <laughs> and see how it evolves differently for the next three years. That's smart. So now give me 30 years of that, and I have 10 versions of an evolved app based on the same sort of skill level of people, hmm. but now you're actually measuring the differences in the mindset of software development at a novice level over a few decades. Wow. Wow. There's a paper for you. There is. <laughs> I, I just virtually dropped the mic. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> That's great. You get me wound up, Maria. Like, you got me thinking about all these things. That's about, cool. You know, it's too, I don't, I'm not going to say it's too late because we probably start a project like that now and look going forward. Um, but I would love to study that data. It would be interesting um, mm. if we, or when we open source try.net, what it would become, and if we reset it and see what happens. And then see if it com- becomes different again years later. Yeah. Right? Mm. It's, it's just ways to see different evolutionary opportunities. 
Yeah. Mm. Mm. Uh, cool. And let me throw just a little other twist in there. Like, <laughs> I'd love to put it into a different language in a different culture and see how it evolved differently. That's a good one. Be- well, because so yeah. much of this has got such a strong Western bias. Yes, it does. And I just think we might be pleased, like, might be thrilled with how a different culture would evolve technology. Given an opportunity. Absolutely. It's, I, I just feel like all too often we're taking too many cues from the, the sort of precursor approach, right? Kenya is a great example. They simply skipped over the wired telephone network. Oh yeah, no, the mm. whole of East Africa, the whole of East yeah. Africa. It's cell phones. Mm. They this just, ne- they never laid the wires, never will lay the wires, don't need the wires. And I have to say, cell phone is a lot better. Over there than it is here. Because it's yeah. fundamental. It's not a luxury. No. It is it, how you communicate. And I think, um, and to bring that into point, I think one of the reasons why Samsung has evolved really well, like I, I can't, like I am actually thinking about switching to Samsung over Apple hmm. because I think since they have a variety of phones at different price ranges. Right. In so, different markets. In different markets. Yeah. Also that you have one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, like I think it's also helped Android development and the sure. way they do it as well. Yeah. Because they've had to adjust. So Samsung for years knows that African the, the Africa has different cell phone providers. Right. Like in Uganda, they're about six or seven. Right. And the reason why is that calling to your same cell phone network is cheaper than calling outside right. of it. So people on average have three or four right. SIM cards that they switch between. Sure. Samsung introduced a phone. And this was about 10 years ago, 10, 15, 10 years, 15 years ago, where you could host more than two SIM cards. More than two. I mean, most phones don't have more than one. Yeah, but, no more wow, than two. Yeah. So my mom's phone, and they have a different phone, holds three SIM cards. Wow. And it shows that this is coming from MTN, this is coming from Airtel, right. this is coming so from... There's a clear some, view of right. what clear SIM you're view working what's with. Coming, so I've right? seen that in Hong Kong, where the average cabbie, the taxi driver, so not a wealthy person, many search four phones. Yeah. Three, three of them are cheap throwaway phones, and they're one fancy phone. They're one and fancy phone. Inbound calls for Hong Kong is one SIM. Outbound calls for Hong Kong is another SIM. Inbound huh. calls from China is another SIM. Outbound calls to China is another SIM. Oh, yeah. Wow. And they do have phones. Like, I think um, I bought my grandmother a phone, which was 30,000 Uganda shillings, which would be the equivalent of three bucks fifty. There you go. Okay. Hmm. Right? Wow. Wow, that's cool. So what is what is next for you? What are you working on right now that uh, is really catching your fire? So I think right now I'm all in for try.net. Yeah, that nice. is what I'm working on. Great project. On. Um, and the next step there is being able to do an ASP.NET Core application okay. and be able to uh, save your session and we'll be using, doing, using GISTs. So you can actually, we'll create a GitHub repo for you. You have it in the oh, live nice. file and we'll be saving your sessions. And then being able to open that in Visual Studio and wow. Visual Studio Code. Carry that stuff forward. Yeah, awesome. move it forward. So that's a big one for us. It's the next six weeks. And yeah. hopefully around build time frame, we'll have something to show you guys. Well, definitely keep in touch with us then. Yeah, yeah. We'll cool. hear about it. it. Yeah. All right. Maybe we'll see it build. Maybe you might see it build. All I'll, right. I'll go pull Guffy's ear and I was like, how do you see this? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Maria. Yeah, thank you for having uh, me. It's been wonderful. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a